Very good. Well, hello, you all. Thank you for being here on a beautiful Corvallis evening. Um, our text tonight is Acts 21:16 through 24:27, and we're going to be all over it throughout the night. So, open it up and be ready to flip pages back and forth and work through the whole thing. So, while you are getting there, I'll share this story with you. So, a few weeks ago, I had the honor of being a part of the other branch short-term mission trip this year, not Haiti, but East Asia. And um, we got to spend about 10 days there. We got to know the workers, we helped them in their work, we learned a ton. It was an amazing experience. It was really, really good. Um, and I went with a really close friend of mine who's a part of our church that if you don't know, you all should get to know, and his name is Andrew Glassbell. Um, and him and I have been good friends throughout the year, so he's given me permission to share this story, so don't be concerned. Um, now, Andrew was super scared to start in on the trip. And it's kind of understandable because we're going out in some rural areas and areas that are pretty hostile to the gospel being shared. Um, but we had just about every conversation about every possible thing that could go wrong on the trip in the months leading up to it. Um, everything from, I don't think I can eat the food there, we're going to get stuck there and I'm never going to come home, um, we're going to get in some crazy car wreck because the drivers are crazy there, just every single thing we walked through, and his parents included, didn't really help that situation in feeding him with things to be concerned about. So he almost didn't go, but through a lot of conversations and I think God's spirit kind of moving him along, he ended up on the trip. And the most amazing thing happened when he got to East Asia he became courageous and like amazingly so we encountered crazy weather like huge thunderstorms and hailstorms and that's always been something that he'd been kind of concerned about for the trip um, we had really challenging food we encountered many intimidating farm animals and um, endless bus rides and just the crazy driving there through you know traffic pulling around the other way and insane things happening and um so i we were talking later on in the trip like andrew you have this newfound fearlessness where did this come from and he said something really profound that i think brings brings some light onto our text tonight he said essentially you know as i've as i've handed over my earthly comforts to god put them in his hands i've experienced more and more of god's comfort and it's way better he said as i've handed over my earthly comforts to god i've experienced more and more of god's comfort and it's way better so again, I, I say this because I think our story tonight highlights the amazing comfort of Christ that gives courage to step into Christ's often uncomfortable mission. And Paul in our story tonight is met by Jesus in a season of incredible difficulty, suffering, and deep discomfort, but he finds Jesus giving him real courage and comfort. So this, this theme is where we're gonna focus in our story tonight, that we find true comfort and real courage the presence, the power, and the purpose of Christ. So again, if you want to write it down, we find true comfort in, and courage through the presence, the power, and the purpose of Christ. So again, our text tonight is Acts 21, 16 through 24, 27, which is a huge chunk of text spanning a lot of different events. Um, now, it's a story that Luke has written down, and it's pretty amazing. It's a total roller coaster that follows Paul as he's trying to follow Jesus um, with near disaster and then intervention and kind of coming out of the disaster six separate times throughout the text. So just up and down and up and down. It's an amazing story. So I thought we should start tonight and we can just walk through the story and then we can start to kind of begin to capture what's happening in the narrative and, and sink ourselves into it, get a feel for it. Then afterwards, we can step back, 
And we can look at this important moment where Jesus shows up and how that shaped Paul's comfort and courage and how he responds to his circumstances. So does that sound good? You all on board? Yes? Okay, good. All right, let's dive in. So this story, starting in 2116, like many good stories, begins with an epic journey. So Paul has departed from Caesarea and he's headed to Jerusalem. Now up to this point, this journey has been fraught with people through the spirit who keep warning Paul in every city of the suffering that's awaiting him in Jerusalem. It's like you know, Indiana Jones when he's like going into the temple of doom and there's skulls everywhere and this like thing comes out of the wall and just the tension is building and building and building. So by the time he finally gets into the center of the temple, you're just, your heart is pounding and you don't know what's gonna happen. It's Luke's building that tension through the narrative all the way up until Paul arrives in Jerusalem. Now this hike from uh, Caesarea to Jerusalem is about the same distance as here to the south edge of Portland. So it's a long, long walk, he's exhausted, and he's carrying an offering there that he's collected from all the different churches throughout Asia to the church in Jerusalem. And he's been collecting these funds from quite some time, and he's been kind of stirring up the churches in Asia to take this offering forward. And so he is stoked to arrive in Jerusalem, deliver this offering, and start to build and encourage the church there. Also, besides just the Christians there, Paul's love for the Jews in Jerusalem is second to none. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, when speaking of the Israelites and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul quite literally says in his life that he would go to hell if these people he has come to see could be saved. So just imagine the excitement and the overwhelming desire in his heart as he walks into the city for this offering to be delivered, for the church to be strengthened, for these people to know Christ. Paul is stoked to get into Jerusalem. Paul, though, immediately encounters a problem when he arrives. The church there has rejected Paul and rejected really even the thought of getting to associate with him based on rumors that he's rejected the law and he's broken the custom. And these Christians are pious and zealous for the Jewish law, so they are, yet they would be furious if Paul had rejected it and said that it was unworthy of following anymore. So the community hatches a plan to gain their favor. They suggested that Paul pay the fees for four men who needed purification in the temple. And to do that, he'd need to walk through some of the customs and other things that these men all had to go through to walk through the purification rites, which is all in the Jewish law. So this would kind of show his agreement with the law and the goodness of the law. Wouldn't say anything about the requirements of following it, but would show that he's kind of in parallel and in step with the other Jewish Christians there. So Paul walks through this, and about seven days in to the purification ceremony, almost at the end, there's some Jewish people there from Asia where he'd been working before and had experienced persecution. And they saw Paul, and they cried out, and looked down at verse 28 of chapter 21, so they say, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. And they stir up a riot. And so the Jews start rioting and they kick everyone out of the temple in the fear that Gentiles might be in there. And the people begin beating Paul to death. This plan had not gone well. And any chance of reconciling with the pious Jewish believers was totally shot. So then there's a riot going on and the Jewish guards or the Roman guards show up because of the riot and everyone stopped beating him. Everyone froze because of the fear of the guards and their heavy handed authority. And it's so cool. You see throughout this story, and this is one of these moments where God is using the Roman authority to protect Paul. 
He uses these authorities at play that are not good to accomplish a really good purpose in defending Paul and walking him through his steps and towards getting the gospel forward. So in this moment, the Jews are against him, and the Romans, upon arresting him, actually thought that he was an Egyptian terrorist who had recently stirred up trouble. So the Jews think he defiled the temple, the Romans think he's a terrorist. Again, things are not going well for Paul. So Paul addresses the tribune who's arrested him, and he gets permission to stand on the temple steps and give a defense to everyone. So he stands up to defend himself and the gospel. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 22. Paul calls out in their own language, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And a hush falls over the crowd. Things are looking up for Paul. He's speaking in their native language, and so they're amazed. He's, oh, this is not just a normal stirrer up of trouble. So Paul walks through his defense. He gives his testimony that he once persecuted people of the way. And he gives a story of his conversion. And then he starts talking about God calling him through a vision to the Gentiles. And as soon as he mentions the Gentiles, everything falls apart again. The whole crowd erupts in uproar, and the moment is lost, and it surges to new heights as people, in verse 23, start throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. So notice this here, though. If you're ever really upset in the future, a really traditional way to throw it is to rip your jacket off and start throwing dirt in the air. So if you're really upset at some point, do it and send me the video. So Paul is then brought into the barracks the tribune is about to interrogate him through third-degree means, through torture, and find out what's really going on. So he exposes Paul back, Paul's back, he ties him up, he stretches his out for flog, him out for flogging, and Paul's about to be whipped and tortured, and he says in the moment, look at the end of verse 25, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Now, it wasn't legal, and even tying him up was against the law. So then it, and the text says in verse 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid. So once again, Paul goes from near disaster to gaining the upper hand for a moment, still not in a good position, still imprisoned unjustly, but at least he wasn't being flogged for the moment. So the next day, the tribune wants to get to the bottom of all this rioting, and he brings Paul and the high priest all together to present their cases against one another. Now look at chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high, high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So Paul gets about 16 words out and then gets hit. And things again are not going well for Paul. So let's go back in verse 3. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you going to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law have me struck? And those who stood by him said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul snapped. He had reached his end. He came into his beloved Jerusalem, and he's been cut off at every turn. He's been unjustly accused, beaten, tied up, almost flogged, and now struck in the mouth in front of the council, and he seems spent. In the heat of the moment, he lashes out, and essentially says to capture the idiom, God will pay you back for that. You may look righteous, but under your priestly robes, you are full of decay and death. Paul was wrong to curse a leader of his people, and it's against the Jewish law to do so, and so he quickly repents. But now, the council is starting to get stirred up again. Riot might be forming, we don't really know. And it's obviously against Paul, so seeing that he's now in a deeper fix than ever, Paul hatches yet another plan. 
He decides to whip up another riot, which is clearly not hard to do with this group of people, and to take the focus off of himself and off of the mistake that he just made. And he knows just what will stir up that riot. So look in chapter 23, verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection that I am on, that, of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So Paul saw that there was this hot-button issue that would whip up the whole council into a frenzy and take the focus off of himself. So he chucks this topical grenade into the middle of the group and his accusers explode in uproar with one another and a riot again begins to form. And they all close in on Paul and Paul's about to get ripped apart from the different sides and God saves Paul again by the hand of the Roman soldiers and he's taken back to the barracks. So now we find Paul as we often find him in prison. This moment in prison, however, is especially discouraging and Looking at the narrative, emotionally, this might be the darkest hour we see Paul in the book of Acts. Paul has not gained the favor of the Jewish Christians. He's been rejected and accused by the Jews whom he has such a heart for. He's been beaten and nearly tortured. He's been humiliated in court and he snapped in court from cursing the high priests. And then he set Israel's leader against one another to save his own skin. So what does God do in this bleak, imprisoned moment? for Paul. He sends Jesus. He sends Jesus to Paul. And this moment right here is where we're going to focus in on tonight. And I believe this is the climax of the narrative that Luke, our author, wants us to focus on. The main character of Acts, Jesus, enters the scene. In verse 11, the following night after he was arrested, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. This moment is crucial, and Jesus strengthens Paul to great courage. And we're going to return here, but let's kind of continue briefly and see what happens through the rest of the story after this moment with Jesus. So, the next day, more than 40 of these, Jew 40 of these Jews being unsatisfied with a live Paul in prison make a plot to kill him. They call for him to be delivered from prison to be tried in the Jewish court, then they plan to jump him and kill him while he's been being delivered from place to place on the small, narrow, dark streets of Jerusalem. But Paul's nephew shows up and tells Paul about the plot because he had heard of it. And Paul sends his nephew to the officer who's holding him. And then the Tribune organizes this massive garrison of hundreds of soldiers to carefully deliver Paul to a safer location for trial and away from the mob that might kill him. So now in verse 31, Paul is delivered from Felix delivered to Felix, the governor, in Caesarea. Now, it's important to note that Felix was an incredibly brutal character in the history of Roman rule over the Jews. He was the only slave to ever be raised up to power, to the power of governor, and he had done so through some family manipulation and some other really unsavory means. And Felix never grew out of the kind of hardened, brutal mentality that a slave might often have. Tacitus the historian wrote of, wrote of Felix, he exercised the power of a king with the mind of a slave. So he quelled uprisings in Jerusalem with this massive, merciless force and had to be eventually dethroned because of the people's bad response to these constant heavy-handed responses. 
So one can only imagine the intimidation and shudder of fear that would be delivered to such a man who would stand in front of Felix, accused of causing an uprising. So Paul is delivered to Felix. He was held for a few days while the Jews in Jerusalem sent representatives over to accuse Paul in front of the governor. And they get there and present a case accusing Paul of some really vague and kind of groundless things, just trying to, hopefully trying to stir up the heavy-handed Felix to prosecute Paul there on the spot. Felix then hears Paul's defense, and Paul does a great job. Felix doesn't see anything really wrong with him, at least not according to Roman law. And he chooses to defer the case until he can hear more from the official who arrested Paul. But Felix defers the case for two years. So Paul sits in jail for two whole years just because Felix wants to do a favor to the Jews, keep them happy, keep this person who they've accused out of their way, let them continue doing their thing. So, but what's amazing is he brings about often to converse often, to hear what Paul has to say about Jesus and the way, but also in hopes of getting bribes from Paul. And that's where our text ends. It's Paul in Felix's household discussing things with Felix. So Paul has been through a confusing, physically painful, often morally gray, emotionally crushing, and extremely chaotic 14 days. However, you wanna, we need to look at the arc of the story to understand what Luke's trying to communicate. So we see Paul with high hopes headed for Jerusalem. And then he gets to Jerusalem and things aren't looking good and you have a little bit of up and down and then things just fall apart. There's riot after riot after riot. Paul is almost beaten, he's almost killed, and he ends up in prison low point of our narrative. And that's when Jesus shows up. And then Paul's nephew shows up. Paul is delivered into the hands of Felix. And we see him raise up until the point where he is preaching the gospel to a governor in Rome. We see the same thing happen with Paul's mentality as well and his courage, that he just seems to get crushed into this moment. And then when Jesus shows up, his whole way of thinking changes. And he keeps this consistent, faithful ministry going forward. So, what we need to ask is, what turns Paul so faithful? How does this moment with Jesus turn a Paul, seemingly crushed in his darkest hour, into a Paul who's ready to preach the gospel? So from this story, we'll try to answer that question. And this one, what would God say to us when the messy combination of our own failure and others' wrongdoing bring us into a bleak, dark moment? And what do we do when the path forward in following Jesus looks like it might deliver us into a bleak, dark moment? Where can we go for comfort and courage in that? So start answering that. Let's go back and settle in on what the story says in verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood beside him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So what does this moment do to Paul? And if we believe that this is actually a true story, what should this moment do to us? Well, I think the first thing we see is that in this moment, Jesus shows up in Paul's prison cell, right? Pretty simple. Christ proves his presence to Paul. He's actually there. After all the failure and disappointment Paul had experienced, it would be easy for Paul to think that he'd been abandoned by the one who had called him into this service. But instead, Jesus shows up. And notice this, Jesus does not show up to Paul in a vision or a dream or speak to him invisibly, which he could have done. Look down and read what it says in 11. The following night, the Lord stood beside him. Jesus himself actually stands in the flesh, in Paul's cell, and comforts him 
Christ bodily stands before Paul and says, take courage. What an amazing king that is. I mean, what other king would be willing to leave their throne to join one of his messengers in prison after failure and disappointment? It's not an absent, distant king that Paul has been representing through this injustice. Christ is right there with him. He takes heart. Paul is consistent in his witness from there forward because Christ is consistent in his presence. So if you've ever watched the Olympics, you've seen, you watch the running events, and you see sometimes you'll, these runners that take off, and they're kind of out in front, they're pushing really hard, someone kind of keeps up with them for a bit, and then the runner that was pushing hard just peels off and kind of gives up in the distance, this weird process that happens. Well, you probably know that those are called pace runners. And I think that it's a really cool picture of what, what we see this evening. So imagine yourself running an Olympic distance race. It's long, it's hard, your lungs feel like they're just caving in, your legs feel like wobbly stumps beneath you as you get every last ounce of energy you've got into just staying in the race. The suffering you're feeling is excruciating and you know it was coming. It's completely unavoidable if you're going to run this race and finish well. You're hurting and the next 100 yards of track you see in front of you are only going to bring more pain. You're considering slowing down and you're alone in the race and you're faltering. Then all of a sudden, another runner comes up beside you. He's your friend. He's trained with you. He's not a competitor. You know him and he knows you. And he's doing the exact same thing you are. He's striving with every ounce of energy he has. And he's saying, go, go, go into your ear. And you're suddenly strengthened. You forget your pain and you press forward with new energy that's been instilled in you by this relationship that just entered the race with you. And this is what Christ did for Paul and exactly what he promises to do for us. What Jesus does, though, is even better as he's completed the race before. He knows he's going to run the entire thing with you, and he goes so far as to promise that he will instill his own infinite strength into yours as you run. You can know for certain that Christ's presence is constantly with you as you strive forward for the sake of the gospel. What a good king Jesus is to stay personally with his representatives in their persecution, in their suffering and comfort them and embolden them. And it may sound trite to say, and, and maybe we say it too lightly, but it is truly one of the most powerful things in your suffering for Christ's people to just say, no matter what, in all of this, Jesus will never leave me. Jesus will never leave me. We can own that promise in our pain. But Paul is consistent in his witness because Jesus is consistent in his presence. And we can be consistent in our witness, even through suffering, because Jesus is consistent in his presence. So first, Jesus proves his presence to Paul. Second, this encounter, this encounter strengthens Paul's faith in Christ's power. Jesus made a very specific promise to Paul in verse 11. He says, you must also testify in Rome. So you have to believe that Paul rolled that promise around in his mind over and over again throughout the next two years of imprisonment in Caesarea, waiting for God to come through and bring him to Rome. In that phrase, Christ gave Paul a very specific promise for him to hang his faith on. It'd be easy to despair in an unsure moment like this one. I mean, you think, sure, Christ has the power to send me wherever he wants. He could do anything with me. But look at how I failed. Look at how I've gotten off track. I've lost it. I don't think that Jesus is going to do anything with me anymore. However, 
the risen Jesus came to Paul in that moment and gave him this specific promise that Paul would preach the gospel in the capital of the Roman Empire, despite his current situation far away from Rome. So it makes sense then why from this point onward, Paul has amazing courage through every circumstance he walks through. And think of what Paul was caught up in. Rome is this massive power of world conquest and spectacular organization, and Israel is an unmoving nation of huge tradition and history, and both don't seem to have Paul's best interests in mind. How could a single dissident confidently set himself against both of their wills? It's because he was promised by Christ that he would preach the gospel in Rome, and nothing could dissuade him from accomplishing that task. If Christ promised that he would testify about Jesus in Rome, Paul was immortal until he testified about Jesus in Rome. It was going to happen. So we can own the same thing. If we build our lives around the promises declared in God's word, of God seeking to get the truth about Christ out to everyone, of living the way Christ did, pressing forward into likely suffering while planning to seek the salvation of our persecutors, we can be sure that God's power will propel us forward. What a bold statement that is. What courage that would bring as we take the gospel to our neighbors and friends and city and world, that our purposes are God's purposes, that our intentions to take the gospel forward are God-inspired, and they're backed by God's power. His purposes are unstoppable. It's a bold thing to say, but we can own that if we are in God's purposes. So I've experienced God's power coming through in some wonderfully remarkable ways in the last week or two. Um, especially in moving forward in his purposes. One of these was I needed a visa to head over to Southeast Asia. And I applied for this visa and couldn't apply because of some travel until about July 5th. And I needed the visa by July 24th. And these visas usually take one to three months to process. So I am quivering in my boots. I'm like just trying to get everything done and send it in and just praying and praying and praying that God would come through on this and asking everyone else, please pray for me. I, I need this visa to come through quickly. I think God wants me to go in this direction, but I do not know how this is going to work out. And God brought the visa through in nine days. Nine days. It just blew my mind. I was absolutely flabbergasted. And as a side note, Stephen Brucker started praying, and he said that he thought the visa was going to come through on Thursday, and he started praying for Thursday, and the visa did indeed come through on Thursday. So if you're trying to gain access to another country, talk to Stephen Brucker. He's got you covered. But all this to say that Christ has the power to make good on his promises and take you wherever you need to go. Christ really, truly has the ability to provide for your needs and get you to the places he wants to lead you. And with that, you can move forward with enormous confidence. So Christ strengthened Paul with faith in his power. Thirdly, and very much tied in with the power of Christ, Jesus reveals his purpose or his plan to Paul. He comes into his cell and tells Paul, in essence, take courage, my purpose is your purpose. You have been proclaiming the gospel in Jerusalem and I want you to continue doing so in Rome as well. Even though Paul had failed in the courtroom with the council and the high priest, Jesus affirms the work that Paul was doing. Christ affirms that he is continuing to bring about the promise that he made to the apostles right at the start of Acts that they will be his witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He affirms, he affirms that the gospel will go to Rome, far away from Jerusalem, and that he is still going to use Paul in that plan. So he's telling Paul, your suffering, the injustice you are facing, even your failures here in Jerusalem, 
I know all of it. And you are still being sent through it all for my purposes. So your failures and others' evil do not stop your call to move the gospel forward. What comfort this purpose is in suffering. To know that Christ's purposes are continuing forward no matter what. This is so much better than any worldly hope or comfort or courage that it could offer. I mean, if we choose to be people who are all about Christ's purposes, we have a better comfort and a great courage through our suffering because we know that our purposes, which we've made his purposes our purposes, so we know that his purposes will continue to be accomplished even in our failure and pain. Nothing can stop the moving forward of what we've put our life into. So Paul is emboldened by this and clearly keeps this as his purpose to the end of his life. Look at his interactions with Felix at the end of the chapter. Let's start at verse 24 of chapter 24. So chapter 24, verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who is Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. So remember, Paul has walked through two weeks of riots, trials, beatings, humiliation, and false accusations, and is now held prisoner in Felix's household, all for charges he did not commit and based on the selfish ambition of Felix. Paul had every reason to be upset and lose focus on the gospel task he had been called to. He absolutely could have checked out and sought comfort in grieving his situation and being upset with Felix, but he somehow has the focus to share the gospel and share it very intentionally to Felix and Drusilla with their interest in mind, trying to see their salvation come out of this situation. Now, I, I was reflecting on this moment um, that Paul was in um, weeks ago when I was traveling through this whole East Asia endeavor. Um, I'd arrived, I was alone traveling over to East Asia um, in the airport in Thailand. I'd landed, it was about 4 a.m. I'd been through six flights so far that trip. I was waiting on my seventh. I was unshowered, gross, tired, hungry, just ready to be done, and I was grumpy. And I had to walk two miles through the airport to get my like check-in over here and go through something over there, and I was just done. And so, kind of praying for patience, come up over a rise on an escalator, and I see in the distance an oasis, a six-foot-long couch parked near a window. And I have like four hours till my next flight. So I just book it over there, I set up my bed, I sprawl out on the couch, and I'm just out, and I get like two glorious hours of sleep in the airport. Not the most comfortable sleep, but it was, it was good. And I wake up, find a place that has a shower, pay $10 for a shower, which is totally worth it. And then kind of get refreshed, have some breakfast. And I'm like, I'm still not, I'm not 100%, but I'm, I'm there. And I, I sit down at the gate. I'm just like thanking God for all these good things that he's provided. And I'm ready to put on my headphones and turn on a podcast and just kind of sleep away the next hour of waiting before my flight left. And then God in his wisdom chose to stretch me. This young, kind of Malaysian-looking guy was sitting next to me, and I looked over, and just as I was about to drift off to sleep, I saw a book he was reading, and it was in English. And it was a spiritual book about something, not Christian, but a, a spiritual-seeking book. And I was immediately convicted in that moment. I, I need to start a gospel conversation with this guy. I need to talk to him. But 
I was also at the same time just grieving the loss of that final nap and that last moment to sleep before I got back on the economy section of another flight. And I was just asking God to please let this opportunity pass just so I could sleep for a moment. And I was not being obedient. God won out though. And I did have a conversation with him and it was wonderful and we got connected and shared the gospel with him and it was amazing. And um, we got to email back and forth now, which is wonderful. But I was very convicted after that, however, how much I am tempted to choose comfort that I can generate in any given moment over the joy and comfort of being a part of God's purposes. And think about it, what a struggle it would have been for Paul to cease grieving the loss of his own comfort and to go and share the gospel with the very leader who was holding him in prison. And what comfort and courage he must have found in Christ in this moment to be emboldened to share like this and disregard his own uncomfortable situation. And Paul not only preaches the gospel here, he preaches it intentionally and thoughtfully based on what he knew of Felix's checkered past. He spoke of the righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. And Felix has this past of power grabs and illicit marriages. And it's just a messy life history that Felix has experienced. And Felix is convicted in that moment. Paul's presentation of the gospel was thoughtful and intentional in the midst of injustice and discomfort and persecution. So when we adopt the purposes of, the Christ, of Christ, we abandon our own purposes and choose the seemingly less, or less comfortable purpose of taking the gospel forward to our friends and our family and to those who have never heard it, who may not even want to hear it. We must look to a new source of comfort if we are to adopt the purposes of Christ. We must adopt the massive comfort of being in the purposes of a king who is good, who's constantly with us, and who is powerful to accomplish his purposes if we are going to move forward in the purpose of Christ. And ultimately, we can choose to live this way because Christ was the one who abandoned his throne. He abandoned the comfort of a perfect relationship with God as Father, and he lowered himself. He donned the extremely uncomfortable form of a human from Nazareth. He lived and he died scorned, beaten, falsely accused, condemned to death, and killed by crucifixion alongside murderers and thieves. He died not for his own crimes, but because of the unjust accusations from those who wanted him dead, and ultimately to save those who were cursing him and killing him. He, instead of acting in wrath against them, gave himself up as a sacrifice for them, taking not only their scorn, but also the punishment from God that they deserved for that very scorn. He took it all, and while he was broken from relationship with his father, because he took that sin on himself. While the world was acting in the greatest injustice in history against the perfect son of God, he died for them. That's our king. That's what our king is like. This story proves every part of the encouragement that Jesus gives to Paul that night in verse 11. Jesus proved his commitment to his purpose by humbling himself from his kingship alongside God and suffering massive injustice and persecution to save sinners. Jesus proved his power when he resurrected from the dead by his own strength, and he promises to do the same to resurrect each of those who trust in his power over death. And Jesus' presence is promised to each of his people as he guides them. He's alive and guarantees that his spirit will walk with them and he will strengthen them with his power. The son of God abandoned his comfort to save sinners. This is the story that Paul believed and this is the story that sent Paul out of comfort to pursue sinners. 
And this is ultimately the story that established Paul's great comfort while enduring persecution. This is the story that we're all invited to believe tonight. So tonight, if you find yourself in a feeling of kind of disconnect, if this all feels foreign to you or doesn't, doesn't click with you, know this, the comfort of Christ is tied to his purposes. You can find far greater courage and comfort in Christ than in anything this world can offer. And there's no better place to put your life than in the purposes of Christ, for they cannot fail. The enjoyment of the purpose of Christ, or the enjoyment of the presence of Christ, is promised to those who press onward in his purposes. And there's no better experience than the presence of Christ. And there's no safer power to put yourself in, to give yourself to, than the power of Christ, for no other power has conquered death. But if you want to relish this comfort in Christ, if you want to experience this, you must adopt the purposes of Christ. And tonight, if you find yourself in a season of trial and even suffering, know this, there is deep comfort to be found in pursuing the purpose Christ has called you to, for it cannot fail. You can have, find solace relishing the presence of Christ because he will never abandon you in failure, success, or in any other circumstance. And you can find peace trusting in the power of Christ. For he who raised, who was raised from the dead can certainly provide for all of your needs and accomplish his purposes in your life. We all experience the temptation and trial to move away from the comfort in Christ and move towards paltry comforts that this world offers. But I encourage you to press away from the temptation to pursue stale earthly comfort and press into the satisfying, glorious comfort of Christ. So to close and wrap up, I wanted to read this passage from the prophet Isaiah, which if we could put it on the screen, that'd be great. Um, There's a poem written to ancient Israel. I think it captures God's desire for his people to abandon their fear of man and to find their comfort in his presence and power and purposes. It's Isaiah 51, 12 through 16, and you can find it in your Bible if you want to, or it will be on the screen. And um, if you want to meditate on all this further, of this experience Paul had, and the, the hope that, for the comfort that we have in Christ, um, this passage is a great thing to meditate on, spend time in in the future. So I'll, I'll read it over us. Isaiah 51, 12 through 16. I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? of the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker, who stretched out the heavens, who laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down shall speedily be released. He shall not die and go down to the pit, neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, and the Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. May we daily crave this comfort above all else. May we be a people who find our comfort and our courage solely 
in the presence and the power and the purposes of Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.